Uh, I am this morning going to wade into a little bit of controversy as we come to God's Word. I don't, I don't like wading into controversy. I don't want to be controversial. However, I know that my view on some things that I'm going to talk about this morning differ probably from a number of you. And I know from other traditions that are out there. And the Reformed tradition that I swim in that goes all the way back, I think, to early church fathers, this is a strong and well-known stream, but it does differ and if you grew up in another tradition, you may not even know that, uh, that this is a different way of thinking about it. And folks can be very, uh, I guess, committed to their own view on such things. But we're going to talk about a new Israel. And the church as God's new Israel. And, uh, and look at the Word of God and to see. I speak, speak from my own conviction by God's Word. Uh, not because I like controversy. But here we are. We're in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. It's one of those things as you work through every book, you don't get to skip anything. There are other verses later on that I wish I could skip, but we're not. We'll dig in and we'll do what we got to do. But here we are, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. Peter writes and he says this. Hear the Word of God. But you, church of Jesus Christ, are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood. You are a, a holy nation. You are a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we gather this morning, we do it as your people who love you and who love your word. And Father, we would, we would submit ourselves to Your Word. We want to know what it says to understand it, that we may conform our hearts and our minds and our lives to it. We would be Your people. And so as we look at Your Word this morning, would You grant us Your wisdom and grace, for we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, as I read the passage, you may be wondering what's so controversial about all that after that lead-in, right? But at the issue, what I think at core, as we read this passage and so many other New Testament passages, is the question of whether God has one people or two people. And really, the church has been divided on that, particularly in the last 150 years. Before that, there was a lot more consensus on one people. Uh, in the last 150, 200 years, with the rise of a dispensational sort of form of theology and a whole theology of of rapture and, and, and a different view of the way things play out have much to do with whether God has one people or two. And whether when Jesus came, there was a split to say, now there's a second people and God has two programs going on, or whether in Christ, what God was doing in Israel funneled down into Christ and from there, God is doing still one thing with one people. Or whether there's two. This may not immediately even seem relevant in terms of what, what does this have to do with much, but I guarantee you it shapes the way you think about your relationship with God. It shapes the way you read the Bible. It shapes the way you view current events in the state of Israel. And it shapes the way you view the future and the way things will come out in the end. It shapes all those things. And whether God is one people or two in understanding uh, all of that. So if you grew up in one way of thinking, you may not even be aware that there is a whole stream uh, going back two millennia that believes that God has just one people, maybe you're surprised that there are people that believe there are two. But Jesus, the New Testament, we don't believe is a fork in the road that, that, that brings us into two covenants, two people, you know, two programs, two sets of promises, two outcomes. It, that when In the New Testament, when we hit Christ's coming, that all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ in what He is doing. 
And the New Testament then is not a second testament, a second covenant. Now we're dealing with the Old Covenant and the Old Covenant people and, an old, and, and a new one. But the new one fulfills the old. It's, it's new not as a second one. It's new in that it fulfills, abrogates, and replaces the old one. And this is what, as you look and, and you start your bulletin under the first point, in Hebrews chapter 8, Paul, uh, well, the writer of Hebrews says, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And a couple of things, it's ready to vanish away within 30 or 40 years of the writing of that. The Romans take the city of Jerusalem, destroy its walls, exile its people, forbid Jews to enter the city of Jerusalem, and raise the temple to the ground and utterly destroy it where it has been destroyed. Old Testament religion was destroyed and the temple has still not been rebuilt. The Old Covenant. And we talked last time about the New Temple and how the church is the New Temple and how the, the, the New Testament labors, the New Testament writers labor to help us understand that we are the new temple. Because the religion of Jude, Old Testament Judaism centered around the temple. Without the temple, there is no Old Covenant. There are no sacrifices. There's no temple worship. There is no forgiveness of sins, which was tied up in this elaborate system of sacrifice. And so the Old Covenant passes, he says, is passing away and becoming obsolete. Why is it obsolete? Well, because the Lamb of God shed His blood that there should be no more shedding of blood. There will be no more sacrifice. There will be no more need for a temple. And the new temple then is that temple which is raised and built on the cornerstone of Christ and who He is and what He has done. And starting with Jesus, what defines God's people is not race. It's not nationality it's not ethnicity it's Christ faith in Jesus Christ being built on that cornerstone into a new house into a new building into a new temple into a new way of worship neither in Jerusalem nor on this mountain but in the spirit God seeks such worshipers to worship him all the New Testament writers, I believe, labor to show this. They, they want to show that God's people now is defined by inclusion in Christ. Not inclusion in a nation or being born of a certain stock or being you know, part of an old covenant, but it, it labors to show that God's people are defined by inclusion in Christ. You want to be grafted into Christ. You want to be connected to Christ by faith. And when we're included in Christ... We inherit all the Old Testament promises. Because Jesus, in one sense, is the only true Israelite. And I've said this before, you know, He is the second Adam. He's the true Adam. He, he succeeds where Adam failed. He's the second Adam that saves. He's not only that, He's the second Israel. He's the true Israel. He's, I've preached before, you know, that, that Jesus is the true vine. That's what He says. The, true, the vine is Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. And if you want to be Israel, you have to be grafted into Jesus. It's the only way to be Israel now. To be grafted into Christ, to abide in Christ, makes you God's people in the only way that matters anymore. Two weeks ago, we dealt with the whole temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices, and we showed how all of that is fulfilled in Christ. It's Jesus who says the law is fulfilled in Him. He doesn't abolish it. He, he fulfills it. The law is fulfilled. The temple is fulfilled. And He says that He is the King in the line of David who rises to His throne. He fulfills every aspect 
of the Old Testament such that, the, that Paul says at one point, all the promises of God are yes in Christ. They're all yes indeed. What, old, what promises? Well, the Old Testament ones. Whatever Old Testament promise, when Paul says that, there's no New Testament in existence. When Paul proclaims to the church, all the promises of God are yes in Jesus. He's saying that is all the Old Testament promises. All of the Old Covenant promises are yes. Where? In some future millennium or some future time or over here, over there? No, in Jesus. They are yes. And so Peter plunders the Old Testament. And that's one of the reasons as I come to this text, Peter plunders the Old Testament and takes every important name that would ever apply to Israel and takes it and applies it to the church. Every description, every important description. Verse 9, you see him, he just strings them together. He plunders the Old Testament and he pulls them from, from all over and he says, you are a chosen race. When he says race there, that, is a, that means that you are of a common ancestry. You have a common ancestor. Um, that you have a common parent. That you're of one family. And, and this, is, this is Israel. They were the chosen race. Their ancestry going to Abraham. Any child of Abraham. right? When Jesus is arguing with the Pharisees, where is their identity? Their core identity. We have Abraham as our father. What are you talking about? We had Abraham as our father. We are the chosen race. Abraham was chosen and his children in him and the tribes. And we are the chosen generation, family, ancestry. We belong to the chosen people. And Jesus, if you watch him throughout his entire interaction with these guys, says, really? If you were of your father, you would be doing the things that belong to your father. But you're of your father, the devil. And he rejects him and says, no, you're not. And he says, another time he said, they say, oh, but we are of our father Abraham. And he says, don't say that. God can raise up sons of Abraham from these stones. And you know what he does? Exactly that. From Gentile stones on the outside, he raises up children of Abraham. And that's what the New Testament labors to, to teach us. Galatians 3.20, it's there under your first point. Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. His race, his generation, his posterity, his family, right? If you are Christ, and this is where I say it's in Christ now that is defined. Believing Israel grafted into Christ by faith, believing Gentiles into Christ by faith. If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. And I would say that the New Testament labors to say, and only then are you Abraham's offspring. That his offspring is ultimately spiritual. It's not ethnic. It's not a nationality that saves. It's a, it's a faith that saves. And so if you are Christ's and Abraham's offspring, you are heirs according to the promise. What promise? The Old Testament promise is inherited by the church. Now Christians are this chosen race. And they're not any race. Chosen now Peter says you're a chosen race. Not any race. He says we are the children of Abraham. That race Paul says it several times, half a dozen times. We are that race. Children of Abraham, that is, you are Israelites. Verse 9, he says, you, goes on to say that you are a royal priesthood and a holy nation. This is core to Israel's identity. Exodus 19.6 in your bulletin. At least it should be in your bulletin. It says in Exodus 19.6, you, Israel, shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? This is 
what made Israel Israel. You, Israel, and this is Exodus. This is foundational. This is when, when God is delivering them from Egypt and establishing them, taking them to the promised land and creating of them a nation and giving them his name and his identity and, and, and establishing them as a nation. And he says, and this is what you're going to be for me. This is like foundational definition of what it means. You will be to me a kingdom of priests. You will be my holy nation. Peter plunders the Old Testament and says, Church of Jesus, do you not know? You are this royal priesthood. You are this holy nation. In verse 9, he goes on to say and speak of a people for his own possession. This is classic core Israelite identity. This is used a half a dozen or a dozen times in the Old Testament. I'm just going to pull one that pulls together several of these themes, but is core to Israel's self-identity as His chosen people, that, he, that they belong to Him in a special way. And so Deuteronomy 14.2 right there, it says, You are a people holy to the Lord, the holy nation, that the Lord has chosen, the chosen nation, to be a people for His treasured possession out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth. Verse 10, he continues to plunder the Old Testament. He says, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. If you've ever read the book of Hosea, you'd recognize that sentence as Peter saying that the church is the, is the fulfillment of the entire book of Hosea. Hosea is this prophet that's given like the weirdest job ever, right? He's, he's called by God and he's given the job to go and marry a prostitute to demonstrate Israel's unfaithfulness and to bear children. And he bears children by this woman. And then God tells him, give your children prophetic names. I'll tell you what to name your children. The children of this unfaithfulness that, that is Israel. There in your bulletin, Hosea 1.9, he comes to him and he says, you're to call your firstborn son, call his name, not my people. How would you like God to tell you to name your children? You know, here, here's, here's a name for you. <laughs> not my people. Why? Because you are not my people and I am not your God. Judgment falls. And then in, in verse 6, before that he calls his firstborn daughter, he says, call her name, no mercy. So your name, your name, your children are not my people and no mercy. And the reason is, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel, forgive them at all. And then he goes on to speak of a day of mercy. And he goes on to speak of a day when he would take people that are not his people and make them his people. And in Hosea 2.23, he says, I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people. And you shall say, you are my God. And Peter says, he was talking about you. Talking about you. You are those people who, as Ephesians says, once you were outside the commonwealth of Israel, once you were outside the promises, once you stood far away. And he says, but not anymore. But now, now, where you were far away from, now you've been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, these things belong to you. Now, you who were not my people, you who did not have mercy. And he says, at that time you were outside of Christ and without hope in the world. 
And he says, you who had no mercy and were not a people, now you are the fulfillment in Christ of all things that he had been promising in terms of a restoration. And so Grudem here in your first point in your bulletin, he says, God has bestowed on the church almost all of the blessings promised to Israel. Right? Peter says, hear me, right? The temple's no longer in Jerusalem. You're the temple, right? The priesthood is no longer descended from Aaron. You're the priesthood. God's chosen are no longer just an ethnic reality, but you who have faith in Christ, right? The chosen nation that is blessed by God and holy is no longer ethnic Israel, but the church. Those who have found mercy, those who now are the people of God, those who now say, you are my God, to the glory of God in the face of Christ. Those who embrace Christ and not reject Him. Who put their trust in Christ alone. And Jesus said this would happen. If you look there in your bulletin, Matthew 21, 43, Jesus told the Jewish leadership as they were arguing with Him, and He's already told them that you're not the children of Abraham, you're children of your father the devil because you do His works. And then he says to them, he tells them the parable of the vineyard, and he says, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. It's going to be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And where does Jesus say fruitfulness is found? If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Right? That is where the fruitfulness that God has sought in Old Testament Israel and that He seeks in the New Testament in any age in history, He says, it's found in Jesus. Clowney says this, Ed Clowney, who was president of Westminster Seminary for many, many years, he said, the people of Israel broke God's covenant. They defiled themselves with immorality and idolatry. God delivered His judgment through the prophets. They had become lo ami, no people. They were no longer the holy people of God. And yet God had promised a marvelous restoration. Not only here, but through Abraham and in so many places. Israel would again be made holy. And it is this fulfillment that Peter proclaims. The temple of the new covenant is a spiritual temple. Those who have made a nation of priests are not simply a restored Israel, but believers whom Christ gathers from the nations. If Israel through sin had become no people and had lost the right to the covenant promise, then grace can restore the Israelites to their forfeited inheritance. It can also equally bring polluted Gentiles into intimate fellowship with God. In other words, Israel is restored and saved in Christ. You know, in in Romans 11, it speaks of that tree and some are broken off so that the wild can be grafted in and the Gentiles are the wild. And so you have believing Israel still in the tree and wild Gentiles grafted into the tree. Let me ask what the tree is. Right? In Christ, we become one. And it's not so much that the church replaces Israel. We become one. Jews and Gentiles are saved. That's Romans 1-3 to is we are all lost in sin and there's one way of salvation. And when he says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are saved by faith, his argument had been Jew and Gentiles alike are under the same problem. And they have the same answer. And they end up in the same place with the same Savior and the same hope. And it's Jesus. Where Israel failed to keep covenant, God bore the curse in His own Son. Where Abraham was shown the the flaming pot of God's presence passing through the severed animals, making cutting a covenant with Abraham and saying, should you fail to keep covenant, I will bear the curse. And when Israel failed to keep covenant, He bore the curse in His own Son. And now Israel can be saved. In Christ. 
And the glory of the New Testament is not only that He saves believing Israel, but believing Gentiles. And so in Ephesians 2, it's there under the same point. He Himself then, Jesus, is our peace. Who has made us, Jew and Gentile, both of us, one. That He might create in Himself one new man out of the two. And I believe that's the core message the New Testament has labored to do. That there's not two religions anymore. That in Christ is the true religion. There's not two men, two nations, two people. But in Christ, He makes one new man. Jesus is true Israel. And so believe those who, from, from Israelite background who believe in Christ become true Israel by faith in Christ. And, and all those, His salvation is big enough in the New Testament where He explodes and actually fulfills the promises to Abraham that through Israel, the, all the nations of the world will be blessed. That not only can Jews believe in Him and be saved, but Gentiles can believe in Him and be saved. And He creates one new man. The people of God. True Israel. All the nations of the earth. It's going to labor through all of these things. <clears throat> you can see in the second point, I want to show that the rest of the New Testament teaches the same thing. And that if you read it, you know, and there is a lens with which we read the Scripture. And one way is to read it as if there's two, and one to read it, is he saying that there's one? And depending on how you choose, the way you hear some of these things. Romans 9, verses 6-8, to 8, he says, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all the children of Abraham are children of Abraham simply because they are his offspring. What does this mean, Paul? What are you trying to say? Well, Paul says this means that it is not the children of the flesh, ethnic descent, national Israel per se, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise. What did we just read in Galatians 3? That if you are in Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and the children of the promise. <clears throat> that it's not by ethnicity. People are chosen people of God, not by physical descent, but by faith. Which is why Paul cries out again and again, there's neither Jew nor Greek. And he means exactly that. Just like he would say, there's neither Ugandan nor Canadian. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female. In other words, it's not ethnic, it's not gender, it's not class. He says there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, you know, male nor female. He says it's not gender, it's not class, it is not ethnicity. There's none of these anymore. But in Christ, all are one. Saved one way with now one destiny caught up in Christ as co-heirs with Him of all that God has ever promised. Galatians 3, 7 and 11. I mean, I just read a couple of these. He says, Know then that there is those of faith. It is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. There is neither Greek nor Jew. Circumcised, that is, Israelite or uncircumcised Gentile. Those categories, he said, do not exist in Christ anymore. But Christ is all and He is in all. He has made one new man out of all of them. And so you can be Jewish and believe into Christ and be absolutely saved. You can be Ugandan. You can be Canadian. You can be Ethiopian. You can be whatever it is. There's one new man. And He is Jesus. Christ alone. And so Romans 2, 28 and 29 where Paul writes and he says, no one is a Jew by merely being one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. 
Right? In other words, you can be physically, ethnically, relationally, genetically, and in every other way a Gentile. And he says, but no one is a Jew on those terms. Nor is circumcision just a physical and outward. You can have that mark in your body. And he says, and it doesn't buy you a dime. But a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit. What does it mean to be the people of God? Paul cries out in Philippians 3.3, we are the circumcision. We are Israel. We who worship by the Spirit of God and who glory in Christ. So Matthew 3.9, don't presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you, God is going to raise up sons of Abraham. True children of faith. So, a couple of areas. I mean, I would love to have another 20 minutes and hammer out to you some of the ways that, that this matters to us and the way that we read our Bible and read our Old Testament and read those promises and, and see how not just here Peter, but every New Testament writer plunders the Old Testament for its promises that are fulfilled and, and titles that are, are brought on and all the ways that the Old Testament becomes our heritage, our inheritance. That in Christ, all the promises are yes and we are co-heirs with Christ. And all that is His is ours. And everything that was promised, He fulfills in His self. And this affects our politics. I know, you know it's one of those areas in the way that we relate to the state of Israel as it exists now. Um, it's a secular state. We know that there's a third or half of them that are atheists. It's not a religious nation. It's not, it's not Old Testament Israel the way that it was. It is a political, socio-political, secular state that has religious elements within it. And so the question becomes our relationship to this state. Do we have a biblical obligation to support them? So that without thought to the kind of nation they are or what they're doing or this kind of thing, that we, in order to be, not be cursed by God, must bless Israel in some way which I hear again and again. And my, my thought is, I think that is looking at it wrong. I don't believe there is that kind of biblical allegiance to the socio-political entity that exists there now. I think that we should be allies with Israel because we created them quite literally. In America and England and in, in this theology created Israel after the Second World War. And I believe they're the only democratic state in that area and they are good friends to us just like the UK is a good ally to us, and Israel is a democratic state, is one of our best friends in the world, and I think we should be their allies. But not because I'm afraid of God's curse, but because it's politically expedient at this point in our history. It's our eschatology and how our eschatology plays out, whether there's two peoples and two destinies, and God's going to rapture the church out so he can finish his Jewish program, or whether there's one program, one people, and one future. Let me just close with this thought. Whatever you do with all of that, you know, this is a Sunday school class that I need five weeks on, but I, I lay it out there to say there really is more than one way to read some of these things. And I think we need as graciously to do it, and I hope, hope I said it passionately in my conviction, but I hope, I hope and not offensively and without respect for those who disagree. But I think there are things that we need to search out all the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. And the Word of God is, is ours. And it is meant for our encouragement. But let us close with this thought. That he says, all of this, whatever else you do with it is this. 
All of these things were plundered out of the Old Testament and He made you into this, this chosen people, this holy nation, this priesthood, this people who had received mercy and who are now His people. He did all of this to call you out of darkness into His marvelous light, He says, to proclaim His glories, to worship Him and to sing His praises. Right? To declare the praises of the one who has called us out of darkness and into light. We declare His praises as His people. We do that in our character. As we reflect and represent, as we are holy as He is holy, we proclaim the praises, the glories of the one who has called us out of darkness into a children of light. We do it in our worship with the fruit of our lives, with the fruit of our lips, the sacrifice of praise as we proclaim the glories of a Savior who has given everything to redeem us. We do it in our evangelism, the fruit of our lives, the fruit of our lips, and with the fruit of the gospel as we seek to bring more and more people into the worship and submission to the God who offers salvation freely. Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank You for Your Word that is living and true. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus, who is everything that we are not, who is everything that Israel was not, and that in the desert He would, in 40 days, succeed where they have failed. Not only where Israel failed, but where Adam failed. That all success is in Christ. Father, we thank You for a Savior who tempted in all ways like we are, but was without sin. We thank You for a Savior who has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We thank You for a Savior who has inherited everything that belongs to You in Your glory and Your goodness and pours it out on us through His cross by faith. Father, would You help us to bow our knees to this King who is all and in all. Amen.